Good morning. Please stand with me as we read God's word together. The passage is Philippians 1, verses 3 through 11, and it can be found on page 980 in your pew Bible. And this is our hearts for you. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you, all making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart for you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness, how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. This is God's word. Here we go. Let's pray. Lord, what a gift to stand here before your children, before my family, week after week, and proclaim, thus says the Lord. Would you meet us right now as we look into your word, and in the midst of all of the emotions of this time, would Christ be what consumes our hearts? Would Christ receive the spotlight? Would he be on display? May your spirit give us ears to hear what you are saying in this text to us right now. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. My first sermon at Westgate my candidating sermon on April 3rd, 2011, was from the book of Philippians. The first full series that I preached here in the same year was the book of Philippians. And so I thought it fitting to come full circle this morning, back to where we started. Now, I do not for a moment want to compare myself to the Apostle Paul, nor do I want to imply my experience has been an imprisonment of any sort, like he's talking about in this passage. But I resonate with what he says here, especially how he describes. It's not a good start, is it? (laughs) But especially how he describes his relationship with the church in Philippi. I resonate with that. The affection for them, the nature of their relationship, and his prayer for them. And I can therefore think of no better passage, no better summary of our time 
with you all. And so, as we part, this is what I want to reflect on. These three things this morning, both here in in Philippians and as they apply to us uh, today, our affections in Christ, our partnership in the gospel, and the prayer to keep the gospel of Jesus the main thing. So these opening verses in in Paul's letter, um, it's how he starts. He starts with a prayer for this church in ancient Philippi. And verses 3 through 8 reveal the motivation for his prayer, what what moves in him to well up in this prayer. And then verses 9 through 11 give us the actual content of that prayer, what he is specifically requesting God to do. And as you look at the motivation, what moves him to pray for this church in verses 3 through 8, you cannot help but notice how it overflows with affection and gratitude and joy. Verse 3, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy. There's this sweeping affection he has for this church and an unwavering gratitude. Notice the, how many times he uses the word all or every there. All my remembrance, always in every prayer for you all. It's this sweeping gratitude and affection. And he elaborates on it in verse 7. He says, it's right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart. And he holds all of them in his heart. Not just his friends, not just the ones that were easy to love, not just the the ones who always agreed with him. He loves this entire church. He is genuinely thankful for the entire community. And and you can hear that genuine affection in verse 8. Look at verse 8. He says, for God is my witness. And that's kind of a big statement. You don't throw God out there as your witness unless you really mean what you're about to say, because he's going to know if you're lying, okay? God is my witness how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ. That deep affection that Christ has for us, it overflows in and through Paul in his own affection for this community of believers. He holds them in his heart. He longs for them with thankfulness and joy and deep affection such that he is therefore moved to pray for them. Their relationship is marked by the affections of Christ. And by God's grace, I can stand up here and testify with God as my witness that that has been true of our experience here at Westgate. A mutual affection in Christ Jesus, Uh, a mutual gratitude and joy for one another that overflows from the very affection of Christ. When I first came here, uh, several of my colleagues at College Church, where I served previously, uh, took their first lead pulpits about the same time. And of course, you talk, right? You're going through the same experience, and so we would kind of process things with one another. We'd pray for one another. And I would 
as I would hear some of what they were dealing with, some of the genuinely god-awful behavior they were having to shepherd their congregations through, I kept thinking to myself, man, do I have it good. I get to shepherd a congregation who actually loves Jesus and likes each other. That doesn't always happen. But that's the affections of Christ. And and I know that was hard won for some of you through some difficult seasons in the past, but the affections of Christ have overflowed in this congregation, which doesn't mean we're perfect, doesn't mean that we don't do stupid things, or hurt each other sometimes. But by God's grace, that kind of stuff has been the exception, not the rule. The rule has been the affections of Christ. And we've been on the receiving end of those affections as well. You have loved us well during our time here, and we are eternally grateful for that. You've cared for our family, You've prayed for us. You have prayed for us. You've loved our children. You've taught them God's word. You've been a source of encouragement to us, of kindness, of generosity. You have been patient with me and forgiving when I have let you down. Most of all, you have pointed us to Christ and helped us to treasure him more. And that's the greatest gift you can give us, to help us treasure Christ more. And that's the greatest gift you can give the new lead pastor as well, to be a community that treasures Christ above all things and that helps others to do the same thing. So keep loving one another with the affections of Christ. Keep loving one another with the affections of Christ. And that takes work. We don't naturally drift toward one another in affection. If we're not intentional, we naturally drift apart. And know that as we go with deep gratitude and affection for all of you, we will continue to pray for you in every remembrance because we hold you in our hearts. But where does that kind of consistent affection come from? I mean, these are big words Paul is saying here. Every remembrance, every prayer, every affection. Where does that come from, especially when we're not a consistent kind of people, given the fallen world we live in and the sinful brokenness of our hearts and so on? How can such gratitude and joy be consistent? It's because of the nature of our relationship. The nature of our relationship in the church is deeper than how we treat each other. We are part of something bigger. We are united in a common Savior, and we are bound by a common cause. We are partners in the gospel. That's what Paul grounds his gratitude and joy for the Philippians in, in these opening verses. Look at verse 5. He says, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. 
Paul explicitly grounds his love and gratitude for this church in this gospel partnership that they have. And you see it again in verse 7. It's right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart for you are all partakers or partners with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. So Paul grounds his affection and his consistent joy in the fact that they are partners in gospel ministry. So what does Paul mean by that? What does that phrase, partnership in the gospel, mean? Well, interestingly, the word that's translated partnership here is often translated fellowship. That's the, you know, koinonia. That's the word we usually translate as fellowship. So we have fellowship in the gospel. But what Paul means by the word fellowship isn't necessarily what most Christians today mean by that same word. We tend to think of fellowship as kind of what we do when we get together. You know, whether it's in a small group or in a church, it's kind of this inward churchy thing. Might, you know, if uh, it might be something like having coffee and, and, and cookies together or something, we call that fellowship. If you did that at work, you would call it a social. But if we do it with Christians, we call it fellowship. It's how we use the word. And of course, spending time together, breaking bread together is essential for gospel community. Uh, if you don't spend time together, uh, you cannot grow in your relationship, in your affection, and so on. So it's not a bad thing, but Paul's vision for fellowship is bigger. It's not just what we do as a community when we gather, it's also what we do as a community on mission together for Christ. There is a purpose involved in their fellowship, in their partnership. It's, it's the way that Tolkien uses the word in the fellowship of the ring. Imagine if that story was about what we usually use the word fellowship for. You know, a bunch of hobbits sitting around eating cookies talking about the weather. Nobody would read that book, right? It's a partnership. It's this band of brothers bound by a common cause storming the fires of Mount Doom together. It's, that's the kind of fellowship Paul's talking about here. A partnership in the gospel. And that's the nature of his relationship with the church in Philippi, a fellowship in the gospel. And it's, it's both in the gospel and for the gospel. So the gospel's what binds them together. It's, it's what God has done by his grace through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus that has made them into a community, into a family of redeemed sinners. So they have fellowship in the good news of Jesus, but then they also have fellowship for the gospel. They share in a mission to make Christ known. He puts it later in chapter 1, verse 27, with one mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel and engaged in the same conflict as Paul, verse 30. And the success of this partnership, the success of their mission is rooted ultimately in what God has promised to accomplish in, in them and through them by means of that very same gospel, that very same message. And, and that's what verse 6 is all about. You know, Paul says, I make my prayer with joy 
because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now, and I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. So we often apply that verse uh, individually. What God has done in saving me personally, he will complete by sanctifying me uh, and changing me. And that's true, and this verse applies to that. But Paul has a much wider scope in view here. He ties the good work that God has begun directly to the Philippians' partnership in the gospel. So the success of our gospel partnership, of our mission for Christ, and and therefore our joy in it, does not rest in our own ministry, but in God's ability. That's where our confidence comes from. And God will be faithful to do it. He will be faithful to do it. So the nature of Paul's relationship with the church in Philippi, uh, that's, it's, it's this fellowship in the gospel. That's what excites him. And that has been true of, our, of the nature of our relationship as well. We are partners in the gospel. We have been. Yes, we love each other but we also have a common mission and we've been striving after it to glorify God as a family of believers who make disciples for Christ. And we have a common vision to see Christ treasured above all things in Metro West Boston and in every corner of the globe. And and that mission and that vision, these commitments bind us together in Christ and These things don't change during a transition. This mission and this vision, these commitments, don't change during a transition, nor do they go on pause. It's really tempting to treat an interim period like hitting the pause button on the DVD player or on your TiVo or whatever. You know, we're, we're, we're going to pull back, we're going to slow down, we're going to take a break and wait till the new guy gets here. And, you know, there are some things that are going to be hard to move forward in until the new guy gets here. That's just a reality. But the church's mission does not go on pause. A healthy church is able to keep moving forward in gospel ministry even amid transition. And by God's grace, I believe that Westgate is a healthy church able to do that and so next sunday during the congregational meeting after the service two important things are going to happen first we're going to install some additional leadership for the interim you'll be voting to approve travis as interim associate pastor travis and bruce are going to share the pastoral leadership during this interim together, uh, together with the elders. And I want you to know what most of you already know, but I want you to hear it from me, that God has provided some gifted and godly leaders for this church. I trust these men with my life. You are in good hands. You're in Jesus' hands, and those are the best hands, right? But even the servants he's called to lead you You're in good hands with some godly, humble men who love Jesus. And I have great confidence in that for you. 
God has supplied good leaders to keep us moving forward in life and faith and gospel ministry. The second thing that's going to happen next Sunday is that we'll hear a report and recommendations from the local outreach development team who has completed their work and whose recommendations have been reviewed uh, and approved by the elders. If you've been here for a couple of years, you'll remember that when we went through our kind of work refocusing our vision in 2017, we identified several core commitments of how are we going to see Christ treasured above all things? What do we need to be about as a church for that to happen? And some of those core commitments we identified, we realized these need a little TLC. We need to invest some time and energy to get these where they need to be, beginning with local outreach. That's where we started. And so in 2018, we commissioned a team to uh, figure out, to devote themselves to understanding what is it going to take to cultivate a culture of evangelism and outreach here as a church to, uh, you know, for, so that we can have a culture that, that, of outreach that grows and bears fruit for Christ in a sustainable way and what systems and strategies are necessary to do that for this particular congregation in this specific place. We commissioned them to that work, and, and their task was not to do outreach for us, but to help figure out what is it going to take to mobilize all of us for outreach. That's a lot of work, and it took a lot of time, but we're there and we're going to be reviewing that next Sunday as part of that meeting. And that's a big deal. That's really exciting. It's not a time to pull back or hit pause. It's not a time to disappear or shop around for other churches. This is a time to dig deeper, to trust God together, and to keep moving forward in gospel ministry. Keep praying for our succession planning team. Keep praying for your new lead pastor, that God would turn his heart to Westgate and that God would turn our hearts to him. But keep moving forward for Christ. And we can do that with confidence because we know that the, that the hope and the success ultimately rests in God's hands, not in ours. That he who began a good work in us will be faithful to complete it at the day of Christ. But what will it take? What will it take for Westgate to keep loving each other and to keep moving forward in gospel ministry and ultimately to be found faithful? And that brings us to the actual content of Paul's prayer for this church and our prayer for you all, verses 9 through 11. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Paul wants this church to finish well, the church in Philippi. Notice the repetition of the phrase, 
day of Jesus Christ or day of Christ in verse 6 and verse 10. Paul's thinking about the long game. He's not just thinking about what do we need to do next week or next year. He's thinking about eternity. His heart explodes with affection on the basis of their fellowship in the gospel, but that affection and that partnership motivate him to pray for them to finish well, the long game. He wants them to arrive at the proper destination. But to get there, you have to be on the right road, and you have to stay on that road and not veer off course. Stay between the guardrails. And so there's, there's three parts to Paul's actual prayer for them. First, that God would supply them with the proper guardrails. Second, that they would therefore be able to identify and stay on the road. And third, that they would in fact arrive at the proper destination a faithful and fruitful finish in the day of Christ. And so first, the guardrails. He, he begins by asking God to make the Philippians' love abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight. So there's two rails here. There's love on one side and knowledge on the other. And both of them are necessary to stay on the road. Love gives warmth. It's affection. It's sacrifice. It's commitment. It keeps our faith and our witness from growing stale or cold, indifferent. Love keeps us alive. Knowledge gives direction. It's wisdom, discernment, and intimate relationship with Christ. It keeps our faith and our witness firmly anchored in God and His Word. And together, this love that's informed by knowledge, together, they're able to keep the Philippians on course. That's the goal. The goal of their love abounding in knowledge is so that, verse 10, they may be able to approve what is excellent, to be able to discern what is best, to identify the right road and stay on it. And so what is the road? If love and knowledge are the guardrails, what is the road? What's Paul talking about when he says he wants them to be able to discern what is best or what is most excellent? Well, the word he uses there suggests that he wants them to be able to tell the difference between secondary matters and primary matters, between good things and the best thing the main thing. As one author writes, Paul's concern here is not the choice between what's good and bad, but between what is good and what is best, the main thing. And there's only one thing that can be the main thing. There's only so much room for that slot, that category, main thing. Only one thing can be best or most excellent in the Philippians Gospel Partnership. Only one thing can stand as the central navigation point for the church, giving shape and direction and significance to everything about it. So what is that main thing, according to Paul? You read Philippians, there's only one conclusion you can make. It's the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's the main thing. 
the good news of Jesus. The one thing in the world Paul is willing to lose everything else for, to know Christ and be found in him. And the word gospel, again, it simply means good news, right? But it's specific news. It's, it's news of who God is and what he's done to establish his kingdom and to deal with our sin and all of the effects of our sin through the life, death, and resurrection of his eternal son, Jesus. This gospel stands at the center of Paul's vision for the church. It's the foundation of his partnership with the Philippians in chapter 1, chapter 4. It's the reason he's in chains, chapter 1, verse 7. It's the cause that drives him in 1, 12 through 18. It's the source of his joy amid suffering in 1, 19 to 26. It's the standard and motivation for following Christ, 1, 27 to 30. It's his pattern for life and ministry in 2, 1 through 11. It's his greatest desire to treasure Christ, 3, 1 through 11. His motivation to persevere in 3.12 through 4.1. The basis for unity and reconciliation in 4.2 through 9. For contentment and endurance in 4.10 to 13. And for sacrifice and love in 4.14 to 20. Everything, everything flows out from and points back to the finished work of Christ. Gospel is the main thing, and he wants their love and their knowledge to grow in order to keep them fixed on the gospel, the most excellent thing. As we've emphasized from day one that the good news of Jesus is for both non-Christians and for Christians. We don't outgrow our need for it. It is the message of grace and forgiveness for all who are lost in sin, separated from God, buried in shame, walking in the opposite direction from Him. But even for those who believe, as long as we still struggle with sin, as long as others, as long as uh, we've been sinned against by others, as long as we're tempted to give our deepest affection and allegiance to something other than God, we remain in need of God's grace. And that grace is only available through the finished work of Christ. That's it. There's no other place. We never outgrow our need for the gospel. And so it must be our central navigation point. It must give shape and direction and significance to everything we are and everything we do as a church. It's the it's the road. It's the path we must walk for all of life. It's not just the on-ramp. That's how we often think of it. It's just the on-ramp, and then, you know, you take over from there. It's the whole highway, and it's the only highway that will take us safely to our destination, to be found faithful and fruitful in the day of Christ. And, and you think about it. There are literally a million things that threaten to replace the main thing million. Every church is always being tempted to put something other than the gospel at the center of our fellowship or at the center of our mission and work. 
It's true of Westgate, and it will be true of Westgate in the future. Every church is tempted that way. And many of those things that we're tempted to put there at the center to replace the gospel are good things. Things like family, things like home groups, or music, or preaching, or missions, or youth group, or, or clothing drives, or children's ministry, or outreach, or you know, politics, or so on. There's so many good things that can take the center. But none of them are the main thing. None of these things can give shape and direction and significance to everything about us. For instance, if, if say, Westgate were to become a family-centered church, is family a good thing? Yes, it's a great thing. And we want to promote healthy families and marriages. We want to protect the sanctity of it. We want to equip people to love one another well in the context of families and marriages and so on. But if we are family-centered as a church, where do single, fe- single people fit in? Where do widows fit in or, or people with, whose, whose story in, involves divorce? Where does the teenage mom fit into that church, that family-centered church? Family's a, a good thing, but it's not the gospel. It can't give shape and significance to everything. It can't give focus and power to all that we are and do. And so it's a good thing, and we should encourage it, but we can't let it become the main thing because it's not. Only the gospel's the main thing. And that's true of music and and preaching and preaching styles and home groups and missions and any number of good things. We don't want to say they're bad things. We don't want to neglect them. But we cannot let them become center. Only Jesus and his finished work can be at the center because he's the one whose work gives significance to the happily married couple and the marriage that's been destroyed by unfaithfulness. Jesus can meet both of those people. Jesus can meet the teenage mom just as much as the grandma. He can hold the center. Nothing else can. So, So keeping the gospel the main thing. As one author has written, if there's anything in life we should be passionate about, it's the gospel. And I don't mean passionate only about sharing it with others. I mean passionate about thinking about it, dwelling on it, rejoicing in it, allowing it to color the way we look at the world. Only one thing can be of first importance to each of us only the gospel ought to be. So keep the gospel the main thing. It's the only thing that will bring us to where God wants us to be. That faithful, fruitful finish. To be pure and blameless until the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. And that's not the kind of finish that we can manufacture out of our own effort. It's not the kind of finish that's dependent on the right strategies or the right programs or even the right pastor. It's the kind of finish that God can accomplish, only God, because He's the one who supplies the strength. He's the one who supplies the righteousness through the grace of the gospel and the power of the Spirit. And so therefore, he's the one who gets the credit, 
right? You see that at the end. He's the one who gets the credit to the glory and praise of God. And again, Paul's confidence in this isn't based on how well the Philippians can get their act together or produce this kind of stuff. His confidence is that God started it and God will finish it. He's the one. And he will finish it. He will finish what he has begun. Westgate, your future is bright because it is full of Jesus. It's full of Jesus. So by his grace, may your love abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight so that you may keep the gospel of Jesus the main thing Keep loving one another with the affections of Christ. Keep moving forward in gospel ministry. And keep the gospel the main thing. Stay on the road so that Christ can be treasured above all things. Let's pray. God, thank you for this congregation. Thank you for the love, the humility, the fellowship that we have in your gospel, both the affection and the partnership. But thank you that at the end of the day, what matters most is not what we do for you, but what you've done for us and what you promise to do in the day of Christ. Lord, would you well up our hearts in love? Would you guide that love with knowledge of you? Would you help us to keep the main thing the main thing? And may, by your grace, that bear sweet fruit for the sake of your kingdom, for your fame and renown through this congregation. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.